Hello and welcome back to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. It's November 11th, 2015, and Dissecting the Dismissal is our final episode for the year. As always, broadcaster and anthropologist Sally Warhaft is our host, and she's going to take us exactly 40 years back in time to examine one of the most enduring, dramatic stories in Australia's political history. Um, We're here to discuss it tonight with our two guests because they've written a book together, The Dismissal, in the Queen's name. And uh, I read this book, You Think You Know a Story? And... uh, I sort of, to be honest, I thought, really? I I really need to read another thing on this event? Well, I couldn't put it down. Um, And it really was, uh, you know, one of the, like watching a film where you know the ending, but actually it's it's so gripping every time. uh, The events of, well, the entire uh, saga, really. So to reflect on it, we're so lucky to have both authors with us tonight. Troy Bramston is a writer and columnist for The Australian and a regular contributor to Sky News and a former speechwriter for Kevin Rudd. And Paul Kelly, who has been a guest at the Fifth Estate before, is, of course, one of the giants of political journalism in Australia. He's editor-at-large at The Australian, a former editor-in-chief at The Australian and the author of acclaimed books, including The Hawk Ascendancy, The End of Certainty, The March of Patriots and uh, Triumph and Demise, which was the winner of this year's John Button Prize. Um, Please give them a very warm welcome. Now, I thought we could start by setting the scene and actually go back 40 years to the 10th of November. It's about 6.15pm in Melbourne. And just down the road here, Gough Whitlam is preparing to address the Lord Mayor's banquet. He does this and he gets back on a plane to Canberra, oblivious of what is to unfold in the the following 24 hours. Um, Paul, could you describe to us up until that day what the feeling and and the the, the sense of things was? There was a Whitlam-induced euphoria in the Labor Party. This was particularly noticeable on the morning of the 11th, uh, the morning of Whitlam's political execution. Uh, Never has there been so much euphoria so close to political death. Uh, Whitlam Whitlam was going out that afternoon to seek a half-Senate election from the Governor-General. And the sense in the government, the sense in the Labor caucus was that they were winning that they had the upper hand. The polls were showing that blocking of the budget was highly unpopular. There was a sense of nervousness inside the coalition parties. A lot of people were waiting for the coalition parties to crack, but they didn't. Fraser held them together in one of the most extraordinary technical political achievements since Federation for a whole month. He held his party together and denied Whitlam. So what happened, of course, was the the, uh, dismissal came as uh, an incredible uh, surprise to Whitlam. 
but he misread the signs. Uh, that morning in the Viceregal Notice, it was published that the Governor-General had had two meetings with the Chief Justice. <laughs> the Labor Party saw it, Whitlam saw it. They were blind, they were blind. Whitlam succumbed to his own propaganda that Kerr would do what he wanted and he could not read all the signs in the newspaper uh, and in the political system. Um, well, we'll get into the troika of these three huge characters at the centre of this drama more um, as our conversation goes on, but why, Troy, is it the most significant and dramatic event in Australian political history? Why does it still loom so large? Well, I think, of course, it's unprecedented. Um, it had never happened before in federal politics and it's never happened again since. The characters are so dynamic. They're so incredible. I mean, they're larger than life figures. We describe Whitlam and Fraser in the book as political titans, um, and they were um, giant figures in Australian politics. And John Kerr himself is so vividly drawn, I think, in the book as a scheming, cunning, clever Governor-General uh, with a fascinating history that we think we've uncovered to an extent not before known, which we can, which we can discuss. And of course, this event um, convulses the political system. It involves the Senate, it involves the House of Representatives, it involves the Office of Governor-General, the Prime Minister, the Opposition Leader, the High Court um, and the Palace. Um, so there are tremors that sort of come out from the centre of this political crisis that envelops everything. So it is so compelling. But Sally, can I just take a second, because you mentioned November 10. Um, I wanted to tell you two interesting stories about what happened on this day uh, 40 years ago. And one of those, of course, that Paul mentioned is the two meetings between Sir Garfield Barwick and John Kerr. Uh, they, uh, Sir Garfield Barwick visits John Kerr at 9am in the morning. He informs him of his plan, that he's thinking of dismissing the Whitlam government, asks for formal advice. Uh, Barwick goes away, starts writing the advice, comes back for lunch. They talk about this letter over lunch, and then the letter is delivered to Kerr by car at 4pm that afternoon. So that's a drama playing out that is central to the crisis, but behind the scenes. And there's another drama that takes place here in Melbourne, uh, down the road. You mentioned it's the Lord Mayor's Banquet. Now, this is a fascinating story because the dinner goes late. It's a white-tie event. Uh, so you can Im imagine Malcolm Fraser, Philip Lynch, the deputy leader, uh, Gough Whitlam. They're all um, in, in white-tie, um, and they get the VIP plane back to Canberra. And it doesn't land until around 1am on the morning of November 11. Whitlam offers Fraser and his crew a lift, back to Mel a lift from Melbourne back to Canberra. Now, I interviewed two people that were on that plane. One of them was John Mant, who was Whitlam's chief of staff. Mant was sitting with Gough Whitlam in the plane. They look across and they see uh, Malcolm Fraser and Philip Lynch, their heads together, looking very confident, looking very smug. And, uh, and Mant says to, says to Goff, what are they up to? Something, something's brewing here. It's a strange feeling about it. And then at another part of the aeroplane is Andrew Peacock, who is a senior coalition frontbencher. I interviewed Andrew Peacock on the phone from Texas. He told me 
that he saw those two men with their heads together. Something was happening. He doesn't know what it was. He said, did they know something about what was about to happen? He's not sure. But something was happening on that plane. And then, of course, 12 hours later, the government was dismissed. One of the things that comes out in your book is the, the, the people that did pick up the signs, but they were never the right people at the right time for Gough Whitlam. Uh, Bill Hayden, of course, is the, 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 the classic uh, one meeting with Sir John Kerr, and he knew something was, was afoot, and yet all the time that, that Whitlam had spent and, and no idea. Let's talk about these men, because it's pretty clear that as you say, this could not have happened with any other three people. And let's start with Kerr, because in my reading, he comes across as the main villain in your tale. His obsession that Whitlam would sack him seems to be the psychological heart of this. What is the evidence that you found? Tell us about the new evidence that you found that, that puts Kerr so, uh, in such, such a really bad place uh, in terms of this story? Uh, well, just on the three central characters, uh, Sally, there are no heroes in our book. There are no heroes uh, in this story. This story is about human nature and political power stripped down to its bare essence. And this is the fascinating aspect of the story. It is pure Shakespearean in the contest for power, intimidation, seduction, uh, all the human frailties are on display to a vivid and shocking extent. Now the question you've asked about Kerr is fascinating. Kerr became completely paranoid about Whitlam. Uh, and uh, Kerr, before the budget was blocked, had lost confidence in the Prime Minister. Uh, a lot of this goes back to the loans affair. Uh, Kerr believed that Whitlam had manipulated him during the loans affair, had made him, made him into a stooge. He was very concerned that he looked like a rubber stamp. Now, Kerr was a proud man. He was a man who took himself very seriously. He believed in the reserve powers. He'd studied the reserve powers. He became Governor General to make a difference. He didn't want to be a Governor General who just sat there presiding, presiding over the affairs of state and signing Executive Council documents. So you had this man who was very proud, very intelligent, very vain, and Whitlam, with his indelible uh, inability to understand human nature and his misreading of Kerr, Whitlam never respected Kerr. He tried to intimidate Kerr. He never engaged with Kerr. He never went out to government a house when he had spare time to have lunch with Kerr. He didn't do any of these things. He didn't understand Kerr. He didn't understand human nature. And above all, Whitlam didn't understand that Kerr had distrusted him. And Kerr was enormously infatuated by Whitlam's sense of power, but he was frightened by it. He was intimidated and frightened by Whitlam. And when he saw Whitlam's will to power and Whitlam's determination to break the Senate and break Fraser, Kerr became completely convinced that if he gave Whitlam the slightest indication 
that he was not on Whitlam's side, Whitlam would contact the palace with a view to having Kerr removed. Now, we've got a lot of new documents, documents written before the crisis, during the crisis. We reveal, for example, at the Tun Razak dinner on the 16th of October at Government House, Kerr actually confided in Fraser the day the budget was blocked that he, Kerr, was worried that Whitlam might move against him. So he, gave, he gives Fraser this vital piece of intelligence right at the start of the crisis. So essentially what Kerr did right from the start, he deceived Whitlam. He didn't confide in Whitlam what he really thought. Now this was particularly clever in one sense because it meant that if Whitlam prevailed, if Whitlam prevailed, Whitlam would have always been convinced Kerr was on side. But it also, meant, it also meant that if Whitlam didn't prevail and Kerr was going to intervene, intervene on Fraser's behalf and sack Whitlam, it meant that Kerr would intervene in a constitutional ambush and take Whitlam by surprise. He was never going to give Whitlam the chance to get to the palace first. So in a sense, what we see here is the great organs of state and the great institutions of the Commonwealth are debased in this elemental shootout. That's what it is. At the end of the day, it's just an elemental shootout between two men making calculations about one another. And Kerr, years later in his writings, is boastful. He's boastful about the way that he'd outmaneuvered Whitlam. And Barwick too, to some extent. I mean, perhaps boastful is too strong a word, but he was very proud of his role till the very end, wasn't he? Well, we reinterpret the Kerr-Barwick relationship. Now, Goff always believed and said to me year in and year out that Kerr was a weak man and that Sir Garfield Barwick, as Chief Justice, had put the steel into Kerr for the dismissal. We say the evidence doesn't fit that interpretation at all. Uh, Kerr's advisor during the crisis, the man he he values above all in the crisis is High Court Judge Sir Anthony Mason. Now, Kerr decides right from the start, before the budget's blocked, that if he has to intervene and use the reserve powers, he wants Barwick with him. He knows Barwick is too dangerous to be left alone. So on the night of the 20th of September, three weeks before the budget is blocked, when they're having dinner, Kerr says to Barwick, will you be available to advise me? And Barwick leaves the door open. Now that's all Kerr needs. He's lined up Barwick. He knows if he seeks Barwick's advice what Barwick will say. He doesn't go back to Barwick until the late afternoon of the 9th of November. And he does that after extensive talks with Mason. He's made up his mind at this point to dismiss Whitlam, he then goes back to Barwick to line up Barwick to get official written advice from the Chief Justice that he, as Governor-General, has the power to dismiss the Prime Minister. So the way we describe this, and the name of this chapter, the name of the Kerr-Barwick chapter is manipulating a willing Chief Justice. Kerr recruits Barwick for the exercise Barwick is willing to be recruited. He wants a role. He wants a role in the dismissal of Whitlam. And Barwick 
imagines later on and says, says in one of his memoirs that I think it's fair to say that I stiffened Kerr up for the exercise. And of course, what happened here, what happened here was that, um, that uh, Kerr wanted the Chief Justice with him, the Governor-General and the Chief Justice. What a combination together. It meant they had a watertight case that Whitlam couldn't unravel. And meanwhile, and this was all, I think, new, uh, Mason, this other High Court judge that Barwick is confiding in the whole time, to the point that I think on the, on the eve of the dismissal, uh, Mason actually drafts a dismissal notice uh, for Kerr, which is astonishing. Uh, in, in my mind, that that would happen. Tell us about uh, about this new new uh, information. Anthony Mason is a critical figure in in the dismissal. He he's much more significant than anybody ever realised until recently, and we know this because Sir John Kerr left a ticking time bomb in his personal papers in the National Archives in Canberra. He left two detailed notes that explain Anthony Mason's role. Um, and these, were, these only were revealed a few years ago. Um, Mason remains the only principal figure with any significant role in the crisis never to give an interview. We asked him several times. Others have asked him. He has refused. Uh, he did make a detailed statement in 2012 when his role was revealed. But it's a very significant role. We disclose in the book that Mason is with Kerr at critical times during the crisis. We went back and looked at the vice-regal notices. You can see there's often a notice that Sir Anthony Mason and his wife had dinner with the Governor-General last night in Sydney or in Canberra or was over for lunch or, or so on. Um, we know they had phone calls. Um, we know that Anthony Mason sometimes stayed overnight um, at, at, at Government House in Canberra. Um, so Mason is a significant person. Um, Kerr, I think, idolised Mason, respected him deeply, um, thought he was, was and is a great, a great jurist, a great legal mind. Um, he, of course, had been um, someone who understood the reserve powers, was a constitutionalist. So these are the things that they discussed. And, and Mason confirms that they had discussed the reserve powers at the time Kerr was appointed Governor-General. So, so consider this. So Kerr's uh, appointed Governor-General in 1973. He takes up the job in 1974. There's not a crisis until late 1975. So more than two years before, Kerr says to Mason, I may be able to use the reserve powers at some point. Now, this is an extraordinary revelation. Um, and as you say, Sally, um, Mason talks to Kerr throughout the crisis, and he even drafts a letter of dismissal. The actual instrument to dismiss a Prime Minister is drafted by a sitting High Court judge. Kerr doesn't use that letter. We don't know where that letter is. Apparently it was given back to Mason. We don't know if he, if he still has it or not. Um, but Mason sits on the High Court. He does, Garfield Barwick doesn't know about this role. Um, and there's a strange conversation, to, to finish up this point, that actually happened on this day. So before we were talking about the letter uh, that Garfield Barwick writes to John Kerr, and after Kerr receives the letter, he rings up Barwick and he says, now why don't you go down and ask Sir Anthony Mason what he thinks of the letter? Now, of course, Kerr had been talking to Mason for months at length. He knew what Anthony Mason thought, but he wanted to create the impression, uh, to underscore the impression, I think, with Barwick, 
that he hadn't consulted Mason. So, of course, Barwick goes down and shows Mason the letter. Mason says, it's okay. And Barwick rings Kerr back and tells him the news. So here's Kerr even deceiving Barwick, um, let alone the Prime Minister, um, during, during this crisis. But Mason is a pivotal figure in this story. It's... I think one other interesting point about uh, Mason, Sally, is that we deliberately went and saw Bob Hawke and Paul Keating separately, and we asked them about the Hawke cabinet decision to appoint Sir Anthony Mason Chief Justice of the High Court. Uh, this happened, of course, 12 years after the dismissal. And the cabinet and the prime minister and the senior ministers who made that decision knew nothing of Mason's role in the crisis. And we said to Hawke and Keating, would the cabinet have made Mason Chief Justice if there had been a disclosure about his role in 1975, and both of them were categorical. That would not have been the case. The way Keating explained it to us was quite brilliant. He said, look, um, I've always had a very high regard for Anthony Mason, but if we'd known this, it wouldn't have been a question that this would have counted against him in the cabinet consideration and the cabinet debate it would have been a disqualification. The judgment would have been, fine man, but he's disqualified for the post. There's one other brief point to make about, about Mason, is that even on the 11th of November, late in the afternoon, uh, there's a situation where the Speaker of the House of Representatives has in his hand a motion that the House had passed no confidence in Malcolm Fraser as caretaker Prime Minister and uh, uh, Gordon Scholes, the speaker who we interviewed for the book, was standing at the gate of Government House ready to tell Kerr, uh, the man you have commissioned Prime Minister doesn't have the confidence of the House. Kerr is a little bit unsure what to do in this situation, so what does he do? He rings Sir Anthony Mason, a High Court Justice, and says, how do I handle the speaker? So Mason tells him uh, to hold your resolve, continue on the course of action on which you've set see the Speaker, but tell him his motion is irrelevant because I've already dissolved uh, both houses for an election. So we see Mason playing a legal role, but a very supportive and encouraging role, helping almost with, with tactics and strategy as well. Let's talk about Malcolm Fraser, and let's be very clear, it's not the cuddly version of Malcolm Fraser, who was such a great friend of the Fifth Estate and the Wheeler Centre. This is the ruthless Malcolm Fraser. He, uh, in your book, you say he plays Kerr, uh, while Kerr is in fact playing Barwick. Uh, he maintained his resolve and had a bit of luck. That's my, that's my reading. But tell us, Paul, your insights uh, now, 40 years on into, into Malcolm Fraser. Um, what we find with Malcolm Fraser is you are taken aback by the sheer ruthlessness of the operation. Uh, I think we've never seen anything in Australian politics so purely ruthless as this exercise. He uses the Senate. It is a tainted Senate because a Labor senator has died, Bjorki Peterson has appointed a non-Labor senator to his place. 
that makes the difference. The motion to defer the budget is carried by one vote all the time, and that is the vote. That is the vote that the Labor Party lost because of the death of the Queensland Labor Senator. It is a tainted, undemocratic Senate. Uh, Fraser uses the Senate to block supply, to force Whitlam to an election. When Whitlam refuses to go to an election, Fraser's tactic, along with that of Bob Ellicott, is to procure a dismissal. Fraser is actively working for a dismissal. There's no question about this at all. His reading of Kerr is very acute. His understanding of Kerr is quite brilliant. Fraser said, I always believed Kerr would intervene, but only at the last moment. And he got that right. And we, we have a lot on the Fraser-Kerr relationship. This is one of the most underdeveloped aspects of the whole exercise. At the start, Fraser's tactic with Kerr is to praise him, to uh, defer to Kerr, to genuflect to him, to play to his sense of pride and importance, to explain why the opposition has blocked the budget and what its strategy is. But Fraser knows that Kerr believes in the reserve powers. So Fraser makes the completely correct calculation that provided he can hold discipline on his own side, then at the end of the day, he'll get what he wants. But what happens at the very end, the final Fraser-Kerr meeting on the 6th of November, Fraser threatens Kerr. And Fraser says to Kerr, now listen, Sir John, I've got to tell you, if we don't get the election, and that's all I want. I just want an election to allow the Australian people to decide. But if you don't give us that election, I'm going to have to explain to the Australian people why. And I'm going to have to make a judgment on you and explain your behaviour and your failure, your failure to accept your responsibilities. I'll have to explain that to the Australian public. Very clear threat to occur. And of course, the dismissal comes five days later. So uh, there's no doubt, uh, Fr Fraser, uh, he's ruthless. His reading of Kerr is superb. But above all, what is really brilliant is his maintenance of discipline on the conservative side. He holds his own party together. And I've got to say, this is a very considerable political achievement. He was, of course, tipped off, though, and not just the dinner that you've earlier referred to, but a phone call on the morning of the dismissal um, uh, that... Uh, well, tell us about that phone call. Why don't we get Troy to uh, do that? Well, this is, a, this is a very interesting story. What, what happens at 9.55am on the morning of the dismissal is that the private phone line rings in Malcolm Fraser's office of the Leader of the Opposition. On the phone is John Kerr calling from Government House. Kerr tips off Fraser what he's planning to do that afternoon at lunchtime, which is dismiss the Whitlam government, swear him in as caretaker Prime Minister, and then seek a number of assurances from him about passing supply and dissolving the parliament. Now, this is an extraordinary thing to happen. This is a phone call that should never have been made. Uh, Gough Whitlam, of course, the Prime Minister, is in the dark. He doesn't know anything about this. He arrives at Government House at 1pm and he's ambushed by Kerr with a surprise dismissal. Malcolm Fraser, three hours earlier, knew what was going to happen. 
effectively knew how that day's events would, would play out. Now, this phone call has become a matter of fierce dispute. It, it was first revealed in 1987 uh, in a biography about Malcolm Fraser. Kerr has denied making these uh, statements to him at, on the phone at that time. But we looked at this issue very, very carefully. And there are, there are four elements to it that's now put this phone call that was highly improper beyond doubt. The, fir the first two are that there were two people who heard this phone call that were standing opposite Malcolm Fraser, who was, who was behind his desk when the phone call came. One of them was the Senate leader, Ridge Withers. He left a oral history interview in the National Library where he says uh, that Fraser was giddy with excitement when he received this phone call. He was beside himself and for a moment forgot that other people were in the room listening to this phone call. So Withers is in no doubt that Fraser was told the government was going to be dismissed. The second element is Vic Garland. He was another MP, an opposition whip. He was also in the office. Uh, we interviewed him for the book. Paul interviewed Vic, uh, the last person alive to hear this phone call, or at least one side of it. He's in no doubt. Fraser was tipped off, says that on the record. There are two other things, documents, which are really important in this story. When the phone call comes in, there's an agenda paper for the coalition party room meeting that would start at 10.30. Fraser turns it over and writes a series of points to document what Kerr is telling him in this phone call. We publish that document in the book. I'll come back to that in a second. And the, and the final element is a statutory declaration that Malcolm Fraser made in 2006 affirming that he was tipped off by Kerr about the dismissal on the morning of November 11. He made this statement he left it in his papers uh, and we, we discovered it when we were researching this book. Now, just to go back for a second on the handwritten note, um, Paul probably won't mind me saying that Paul had asked Malcolm about this uh, many times and for Paul's previous book, November 1975, uh, Fraser said he had lost the note. And so, so he never denied it? He never denied it. He said the phone call took place. He said what was... He described what was said on the phone call. He said he made a note of it, but the note was lost. And so some of his critics, Jared Henderson and others, said, well, this is just a completely made-up story. The note doesn't exist. Now, a few years ago, Fraser discovered the note. Um, and I had a number of conversations with him, and I asked him for the note. And in particular, I asked him for both sides of the note. Um, and he found the note which is in his collection at the University of Melbourne, gave us a copy of it. We print both sides of it in the book. Uh, there's no doubt that this note was made. There's eyewitness testimony um, and there's a statutory declaration. And so, absolutely no reason for Malcolm Fraser to say he would have taken that. I mean, it's embarrassing. It should be. It's, it's a strange thing. Paul and I have talked about this. It's embarrassing for Malcolm Fraser, but there is that strange patrician... Um, attitude in Fraser, the, the, the steadfastness, the, the born to rule, the Tory mentality about what is right and what is wrong. He knew this phone call took place and he didn't want to lie about it, um, yet he knew it was improper. And he, he later said, look, it, 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 he tried to defend Kerr by saying, look, it made sense for Kerr to want to check these things off with me, that I was on board with his plan. Um, and he, he said, Kerr should just fess up and own it. Um, and admit it, but Kerr could, could never do that. But uh, as we argue in the book, it's beyond doubt that this phone call took place and the evidence is there to support it. We better talk about Goff. Uh, I mean, when you, when you read the 
detail of this story, I think the most astonishing thing in it for me is actually Gough's naivety, that this man who was able to become Prime Minister uh, and carry people along in so many ways uh, had no idea that this was coming. And when it came, had no capacity at all, no political instincts, no human instincts as to how to deal with it. And in fact, um, how, how he deals with it is he, Sir, Sir John Kerr gives him his letter of dismissal. He shakes his hand and leaves, goes back to the lodge to eat lunch, a steak, I think. One of the, the most well, delightful, but I think also telling quotes in your book is actually Margaret Whitlam, whose response I think is just priceless. She says to Gough, how ridiculous. You should have just torn it up. There were only two of you in the room. <laughs> or you should have slapped his face and told him to pull himself together. <laughs> she had a point, didn't she? I mean, I, <laughs> I think that actually if he'd done that, I don't think Kerr would have thought through that one in advance. Well, um, Goff is a great constitutionalist and he, there's no way he would have ever done anything like that. Uh, when we interviewed Paul Keating, he just said, if he'd have been in Whitlam's position, he would have put the Governor-General under house arrest. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, um, that's the difference between Paul and Goff. <laughs> But of course, if, uh, if Gough had slapped uh, the Governor-General uh, in the face, um, uh, that uh, would not have solved the issue. It was a constitutional issue, and at the end of the day, um, Whitlam in that position had to either back down and advise an election or start trying to ring the palace in the middle of the night. Uh, so uh, basically, Kerr would have forced one or other reaction from Whitlam ripping up the letter uh, was no answer. But look, uh, Sally, this is just fundamental. Uh, the point you've raised, and there are, two, there are two aspects to this. The first is we argue in the book that um, Whitlam didn't understand the nature of the crisis. Now, I know this is, this is extraordinary, but it's absolutely true. You see... Goff thought this crisis was about the power of the House of Representatives, the People's House, and the right of the People's House and the powers of the People's House vis-a-vis -vis the Senate. And this is what Whitlam is arguing in all the great confrontations, the great speeches between Whitlam and Fraser on the floor of the Parliament. But this wasn't the issue. The real issue was the power of the Governor-General and the capacity of the Governor-General to terminate the commission of the Prime Minister. And Whitlam never accepted or understood that that was the issue. Now, for Malcolm Fraser, that was the issue. For Bob Ellicott, that was the issue. And for John Kerr, the whole way through, that was the issue. So essentially, you had these two teams playing on different football fields, if you like, they didn't engage, but that is, that's a sign of Whitlam's great failure. He was in denial about the reserve powers. Now, the second tragedy, the second great example of Whitlam's folly was his misreading of Kerr. 
Goff believed Kerr was a weak man. He could never get this out of his head. And one of the brilliant stories in our book is the Hayden story. The Governor General wants to see Hayden on Thursday, the 6th of November. He wants Hayden as treasurer to brief him on the alternative financial arrangements. Before Hayden goes to Government House, that idiot, the Attorney General, Kep Enderby, says to Hayden, look, don't worry, Kerr's on side. Now, Hayden doesn't know Kerr. He goes out to Government House, he sits down, he starts talking to Kerr, and he finds Kerr has no interest whatsoever in the alternative arrangements. Kerr wants to talk about Whitlam and what a great fighter is, what a great fighter Whitlam is, and how Whitlam can recover from impossible situations. And Hayden sits there and he looks at Kerr in the face. This former Queensland cop looks at Kerr in the face and he knows. He knows Kerr is not on side. Hayden leaves Government House, he's supposed to be going to the airport to fly to Brisbane detours straight back to Parliament House. Goes to Whitlam's office, gets Whitlam out of a meeting. Whitlam is wearing a blue and white striped shirt. He's fiddling with his spectacles and Hayden says to him, Goff, I've just come from Kerr and my copper's instinct tells me he's not on side, I think he's going to sack us. And Goff from his lofty heights looks down at Hayden and says, comrade, he wouldn't have the guts. <laughs> well, what a comment. Five days, five days before the dismissal, the treasurer is telling Whitlam, he's telling Whitlam that he thinks the governor general will move against them and Whitlam doesn't want to know because he's decided, he's completely convinced that Kerr is a weak man and wouldn't have the guts to do it. While the, the big dramas of the 11th of November were playing out, the Queen slept peacefully at Buckingham Palace. Uh, she's the only one who gets her name on the cover of your book, and I, I imagine it's very deliberate that your subtitle is in the Queen's name, because this was all done in her name. Uh, you've collated some very interesting material here to say to suggest, more strongly than a suggestion in fact, some evidence, whilst not getting an interview with Her Majesty yourself, and in fact she's never spoken on the record of course about it, a real uh, indication of the palace's view of this choice. Yeah, Kerr acted in the Queen's name but she would never have done this herself. Um, that is, we think, um, undeniable, um, and, and the evidence bears that out. Um, look, the palace, in a nutshell, were surprised by the dismissal. They later tried to distance themselves from John Kerr's actions, and they were so uh, worried about his character and his behaviour that by 1977, they tried to edge him out of office. They pushed him into an early retirement, um, and that had Malcolm Fraser's support. Um, and we, we know this because we've done interviews with uh, Sir William Heseltine, um, who was, was the Queen's Assistant Private Secretary in 1975. Um, and some years ago, Paul did an interview with um, 
um, Sir Martin Charteris, who was the private secretary, the senior private secretary in 1975. But Sir William Heseltine is a fascinating figure. This is a guy who was an Australian, born in Fremantle, um, had worked in the Commonwealth Public Service, worked for Robert Menzies, was his private secretary, went on secondment to the palace and, and had a relationship with the palace, then joined the press office and then the private office. Um, at 2am in London on the morning of November 11, uh, Sir William Heseltine gets the phone call from Government House in Canberra telling him the news that uh, the Queen's representative had sacked the Prime Minister. Now, Sir William Heseltine's reaction was a double take. He says, what? Um, you know, he, it, was, it, was, it was stunning information, just couldn't believe it, had to process it. He decides to go back. He, he, he didn't want to wake the Queen up. Uh, because that's not really the done the done thing at two o'clock in the morning. So he decides to go back to bed and he will make an early start in the office. And he gets there, I think, around 7am. He sees Sir Martin Charteris, who had just gotten off the phone from Gough Whitlam. Um, and Sir Martin was very embarrassed because he had answered the phone as, you know, uh, good afternoon, Prime Minister. And Whitlam says, it's not the Prime Minister, it's the member for Werriwa. Um, and Charteris, a man of protocol and custom and tradition and titles, was embarrassed um, by that phone call. So he knew about the dismissal. They decided that before the Queen heard the news on the radio at 8am, they would, they would make an approach to her. Um, so the two of them went up um, and met her just near her bedroom, they recall, told her the news. Now, we don't know what the Queen's actual reaction was. In fact, she may not have said anything. Um, but Sir William and Sir Martin are confident that she shared their view. And their view is that they did not think this was an ideal solution to the crisis. Uh, they thought that Kerr had acted prematurely. He should have tried to seek... There should have been a political solution to it, um, and they thought it was improper. Now, the point about monarchy is to avoid confrontation, is to avoid politicising the office. And that was Kerr's great failure, not only not to warn Whitlam, um, but uh, to intervene in the, in the political crisis. So we're very confident um, in drawing that conclusion that the palace did not think it was a great idea. And just quickly on another point, uh, which is that we discovered a document uh, that was written by Sir Paul Hasluck, who was Kerr's predecessor as Governor-General. He had a relationship with the palace, of course, and in 1977, he had a couple of uh, discussions with Sir Martin Charteris, and then he recorded it all in a note. Um, now, it's worth commenting that um, Nick Nicholas Hasluck, who's Sir Paul's son, uh, I have a little bit of a relationship with him. I just rang him up one day and said, do you have any information that your father may have left uh, that might be relevant to this book Paul and I are working on? He says, well, funny you should mention that. In my private collection, I've got this archival note. And this archival note is a discussion that took place in August 1977 between Sir Paul Hasluck and Martin Charteris. And they talk about Kerr. And they talk about the crisis at great length. And in that discussion, it becomes very clear the palace were not happy with the decision. And they, in fact, describe... The palace staff described the Kerrs as, quote, very greedy people. It's an extraordinary mm -hmm. word, greedy. And that shows you that they were concerned about his character and they tried to force him out of, force him out of office, which they succeeded in 1977. But it's a torturous process about edging a Governor-General out. It's got to be done carefully. 
Um, and so we go into great length to, to describe that. But look, in, in a nutshell, the palace were not happy about this. And of course, um, uh, Gough Whitlam, many years later, uh, apologised to the Queen in person for recommending she appoint Sir John Kerr. <laughs> um, now, what you were not able to see, of course, is a, well, an almost seemingly insane amount of correspondence between Sir John Kerr and the palace in the whole lead-up to this and his, his sort of obsession with ticking off the boxes of propriety. In fact, it seems like it was quite the opposite. Um, we're not able to see these documents, I think, until December 2027, 50 years after he left the office. Outrageous, outrageous, uh, you know, abuse of Australian sovereignty, of course. Malcolm Turnbull, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, is launching your book tomorrow in Canberra. Um, and... I mean, one wonders how long perhaps we won't have to wait till 2027 to see these documents that seem, well, very much like we're, we should be entitled to. Well, the question here is very simple. It's the right of the Australian public to own its own history. Um, the letters Kerr writes to the palace are fundamental source documents. The relationship between Kerr and the palace is critical. He cultivates the palace. He's very assiduous. The letters are very, very extensive. And essentially, from what we can discern, what he's attempting to do in these letters is to assure the palace that he is the master. He's on top of this situation, that he will look after the monarchy, safeguard its interests, he reports at great length on his private conversations with both Whitlam and Fraser. But the message is, the message is, you can rely on me to sort this out. Now, the point about these documents is, in a quite extraordinary um, agreement between Government House and Buckingham Palace, um, which um, was sorted out at the time Kerr retired, and the Buckingham Palace letters were deposited in the National Archives, the initial agreement was they were to be confidential for 60 years after Kerr's retirement, but not released then, only released after that point with the official agreement of the private secretaries of the Queen and the Governor-General. Now, the 60 years were subsequently reduced to 50 years, the caveat about the subsequent approval remains. In other words, Buckingham Palace can exercise a permanent veto if it desires over the release of this correspondence which goes to the heart of what happened in this country during the nation's gravest constitutional crisis in terms of the conduct of the Governor-General and the letters he wrote to the palace in the discharge of his duty. Now, we wrote a letter to the Attorney-General, George Brandis, with a copy to the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, about this, pointing out the situation and saying that the key point about this is that these letters are falsely designated personal or private. They are not designated as Commonwealth Government records, which is manifestly what they are. Now, We've subsequently spoken to Malcolm Turnbull about this, and uh, we wrote a story 
in The Australian on Monday morning saying that Turnbull as Prime Minister intends to pursue this issue with the Governor-General Sir Peter Cosgrove and with the Queen through Buckingham Palace and that it's Turnbull's intention to give formal advice that these letters should be disclosed in the Australian public interest. Now, this is going to be very fascinating because essentially I think, and I've written a column about this in Tomorrow's Australian, I think we actually see a conflict here because this is palace policy. The palace is extremely sensitive about these letters. Uh, the palace will not want to release these letters. Uh, the Queen has personally approved this long non-disclosure period. And we're now going to be in a situation where the Australian Prime Minister will offer formal advice to the Queen, either directly himself or through the Governor-General, seeking the release of this correspondence. I think there is a clear tension here, a conflict of interest and a conflict of perception between Canberra and London. <sighs> Rabble rousers. If you would like to ask a question, put up your hand and if someone puts a microphone in it, start talking. Uh, Paul and Troy, thank you for this. If I heard you correctly, I think, Paul, on ABC radio today, you were asked, would it happen again? And you said, I thought not. If I might, might say briefly, I, I work with people in their 20s and 30s who are a bit bemused about the continuing um, dismissal interest. And as you said, governments has, the organs of government have been debased. Why couldn't it happen again? You know, when we're all dead, give it 50, well, some might get more, but why not? Well, it's a very good question, and we can't know for certain what the answer to that question is. I guess we make two points about this in the book. The first is we say that all the power still exists. Uh, the Senate still has the power to block supply and force an election. A Prime Minister in that situation can still remain in office, as did Whitlam, and try and break the nerve of the Senate. And a Governor-General still has the dismissal power at his disposal to use. So the powers are there. So technically, technically in that sense, it could happen again. I think what's actually happened, though, is there's been a reaction and a cultural change in the political system as a result of what happened. Essentially, what happened in 1975 is that Whitlam, Fraser and Kerr pushed the Constitution, pushed the constitutional system to the limit. This was a very, very dangerous moment for the country. It was resolved, there was an election, there was a change of government, but this was high risk uh, constitutional brinkmanship. And I think if you look at now where the political system is, there's, I think, a recognition in the Senate that it should not block supply. There's been never any suggestion in the last 40 years the Senate would block supply again to force an election. And I think every Governor-General since Sir John Kerr has operated in terms of what was initially called the healing process. I think there's a recognition by Kerr's successors that what Kerr did 
was unwise. This was not a satisfactory solution and that this is not how a Governor-General should behave. And above all, on the precise point, I think there's a recognition now on the part of Kerr's successors that Kerr's fundamental mistake was not to talk frankly with Whitlam, counsel Whitlam, explain the situation and give Whitlam the chance to go to an election as Prime Minister rather than dismiss him in an ambush. So I think there is a lesson in that sense about the way the powers are used. And so far, the political system has absorbed this. Might there be a crisis in the future that we can't imagine now where we could see some of these powers used again? Well, perhaps. I don't rule out that in some sort of fantastic crisis in the future, the Senate might block supply to force a government to the people. I don't rule it out, but it would have to be a very dire event and circumstance. Um, in terms of the release of the, in terms of the release of the Kerr letters, could you explain a bit more what the conflict of interest is with the palace? Well, the palace is highly sensitive about its own correspondence, and this initial agreement is between Government House and the Palace. And it's an agreement where there is an extremely long non-disclosure period, and that reflects uh, the view of the Palace that its own documents should be kept and preserved and not disclosed for a very long period of time. And of course, there is the caveat. And the caveat says that the correspondence can only be released at the end of the 50-year period with the consent, in effect, of the monarch and the governor-general. That's what it says. So what this means, in fact, is the monarch can exercise uh, a de facto um, ongoing uh, a veto on the disclosure of these letters. Uh, that seems to me to be an infringement of Australian sovereignty. Uh, I think that is an unacceptable uh, situation for an independent country like Australia. But we need to appreciate that it's a function of the monarchical system whereby the Queen is our head of state and the Governor-General represents the Queen in this country. So if Malcolm Turnbull does what we expect him to do, and that is he approaches the palace on behalf of the Australian people saying, well, look, we have a 30-year rule in this country. All Kerr's other documents are now released. It's in the interests of uh, Australia and Australian public opinion that Kerr's letters now be made available to the Australian public. Well, that is Turnbull representing an Australian position, but that position is in conflict with the current documentation whereby the palace is saying it wants this material to continue to be locked up. So that is the nature of the conflict. It's the nature of these competing interests and it's the nature of these different perceptions. What a pity Malcolm Turnbull can't just go to the Barossa Valley and have a glass of wine with Prince Charles tonight and <laughs> sort it all out. Next one. Uh, thank you. Very interesting. What an image. Uh, John Kerr and uh, Gough Whitlam in the room that morning of the 11th. Um, 
I'm interested to know whether your research extended to finding out whether um, Kerr had a plan B, whether it was a slap in the face or ripping up of the note or bringing in the troops even. Look, it's, it's difficult to, to know precisely and we're reluctant to get into hypotheticals, but we can say that Kerr was very worried about what would take place that day. He had, he had made a decision, I think, on the 9th um, of, of November that he was going to dismiss the government and he was getting his paperwork ready. But there's a couple of things that happened that morning. One of them, of course, was the Malcolm Fraser phone call. We don't need to repeat what happened there. But that was essentially you know, a, a, a measure to make sure that things would go as he planned them to, to, planned them to, to, to go later that afternoon. But there's a couple of other things that happened that, that day. We mentioned the Anthony Mason phone call, so he's still worried about the speaker at four, about 4.40, 4.45 uh, p.m. Um, one of the things that happened too was the phone, a phone call with Cigarfield Barwick on the morning of November 11. This is a phone call that both men did not include in their memoirs, never revealed when they were alive, but for some reason, Cigarfield Barwick made a note of this phone call and put it in his file, and we got that file released a couple of years ago. Now, in, in this phone call, I think it's about 9am on November 11, um, Kerr rings Barwick and says, look, I'm worried about what might happen later today. I'm worried that Whitlam has got wind of my plan, he's already contacted the palace, and he's going to arrive here and he's going to dismiss me as, as Governor-General. So he's panicking, he's paranoid, he's worried. Um, and so that, that's a fascinating insight, I guess, into, into the Kerr psychology. He's talking to Barwick on the phone, he's talking to Mason on the phone, he's lining up Fraser, he's getting his papers ready. So he was worried about how the day would play out. And Sally mentioned before about luck running Malcolm Fraser's way. Well, it ran Malcolm Fraser's way that whole day. Um, including the Senate. We didn't mention the fact that Gough Whitlam, of course, doesn't go back to Parliament House, doesn't convene the Cabinet, doesn't talk to his staff in his office, doesn't tell the Senate leader, um, uh, Ken Reid, or the Senate President, Justin O'Byrne, what had happened. He goes back to the lodge and eats a steak. He summons, he summons the head of the Prime Minister's Department, John Menadue. He summons a few of his staff and a couple of MPs, but no-one from the Senate is there. So the Senate resumes at two o'clock, um, and the senators still don't know what's happened with with the with the with the dismissal. There are rumours that are running through Parliament House. We detail some of the craziness in the Senate as rumours are come in and they've got to be checked and verified and so on. So the point here is that a lot of things could have gone wrong that day. It may not have overturned the dismissal, but there are a lot of opportunities for things not to go as planned but they all went the way Kerr wished them to go, um, and the luck ran with Fraser. And Whitlam, Whitlam didn't have a plan B. Whitlam had no contingency plans. Look, the more you read these documents, the more impatient and angry you get about Whitlam. Um, uh, he he, he monopolised dealings with Kerr. He felt nobody else could manage Kerr, only he could do it. Um, the dismissal was being discussed. There should have been a contingency plan prepared in case Kerr dismissed the government. There was nothing. Our time is up, which is such a pity. I have so many more questions. Um, 
But I, I guess I'd like to end it with the obvious point, I suppose, that this story is now truly history. It's 40 years and the main players are all gone. Um, did that change the, the writing of the book when Malcolm Fraser died unexpectedly, as unexpectedly as somebody can of his age, I suppose? Well, they've all passed into history except for uh, Anthony Mason, but they speak from the grave. Um, there are still more documents to come. Um, this story never ceases to astonish. As I said, this is the purest example of the exercise of naked political power and the lust for power and the, 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 the interaction, the interaction of human beings in this extraordinary uh, elemental quest for power that we could ever possibly imagine. So everything which conceals uh, all the disguises, they're stripped away, they're stripped away in this exercise and you see the naked political contest at work. And uh, we can learn more. They've gone to their grave. They've gone to their grave, but there'll be more documents to come. There'll be more consideration. There'll be the Buckingham Palace letters when we get them. There'll be yet another definitive book on the dismissal <laughs> at that point. And that brings us to the end of the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate series for 2015. As always, you'll find recordings of all our discussions over at wheelercentre.com, where you can also spend your summer unearthing other great talks from our archives, as well as some great original writing, and soon, a new place for discussing books, writing and ideas online. Before we bid you goodbye for the year, a few That's more a words from Sally. I want to very quickly thank Michael Williams, the director of the Wheeler Centre. Um, I want to thank all the staff, Oren, the technical guy here, who makes everything broadcast quality. And uh, that's why you can enjoy it so much. I want to thank the ushers, uh, all the staff at Wheeler, but I especially want to thank my producer, Gemma Rayner, who works very hard uh, on this series. And I want to thank the audience. It's been another great, great year. So thank you. Uh, and a, a very, very big thank you to Paul Kelly and Choi Bramston. Thank you for listening. 